The idea of a resurrection seems a little far-fetched. For most of us, it's something that is more likely to show up in the plotline of a sci-fi movie. However unbelievable it may appear, there are first-hand accounts of people who knew Jesus, both before and after he came back to life. That single event changed not only their faith, but also their lives. Welcome, everyone. Before uh, we dive in uh, this morning, I want to uh, just reiterate something Pastor Joe hit on, and that's that 101. Uh, If you've never been to 101 before, if you're newer to Grace, or actually, even if it's been a long time since you've gone through, I encourage you to come to 101 this afternoon, 2 o'clock, we'll meet in this room. Uh, I promise you, you will find that a good investment of your time. And uh, you'll walk out feeling kind of at home and connected, feeling like you know how grace works and you know how uh, to navigate it. So I'd love for you to, to be there. I teach it, so it lets me uh, hang out with you a little bit, lets me meet some of you. Maybe we haven't met yet. I'd love to do that. And uh, I, I know that you'll find that a great investment of your time. So try to make it today, if you can, to, uh, to 101. Well, we're in a new series right now that we call Before and After. And what we're doing is we're looking at folks in the Bible who had a view of Jesus that was uh, kind of defined one way before his resurrection, and then they interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ, and it shifted their view completely. So they literally did kind of 180s when it came to their view of Jesus and went from either opposing him or thinking that he was nuts to devoted followers of Jesus Christ, believing that he was God, was risen from the dead, and uh, gave the rest of their life, in fact, oftentimes even their very physical life to him, uh, being executed because they would not recant that claim that they had interacted with the resurrected Jesus and he was indeed God. And so we've been looking at that. Uh, We started this conversation uh, a couple weeks ago talking specifically about the resurrection. So if you've ever had questions about that or wanted to dig into the details about it some, uh, that conversation is out on our website, graceoha.org. You can listen to it or watch it or get a podcast for free through iTunes there and kind of grab those details. Last weekend, we talked about James, the the brother of Jesus. And this weekend, I want to introduce you to another one of Jesus's brothers, and that is uh, his brother Jude, right? So Jesus, born of a virgin, Mary. Jesus has a biological mother and an earthly father. Joseph is his earthly father, but not his biological father because of of the miracle of Jesus being born of a virgin. But then Joseph and Mary married and went on to have a a normal marriage. And so they had other children. Uh, Jesus is the oldest. And then Joseph fathered with Mary other children as well. In fact, we know from the Bible in Matthew chapter 13, verse 56, that Jesus had at least uh, four brothers uh, and he also had sisters. And the brothers are named, the sisters aren't, which is... Pretty common for the ancient world. That's the way that it worked. Um, so we, we know of the four brothers, and we know that Jude was the youngest of the four brothers. He might have been the youngest sibling, period. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. But we do know, because the brothers are always listed in order, kind of birth order. He's the last one. So we know that he was the youngest of the, the brothers. We know that Jesus's family did not tend to believe he was God. At least the brothers didn't. Uh, we know in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that his family thought he was out of his mind. That's his, their quote, that uh, he, yeah, he's just crazy. We don't know what to do with him. We know in John chapter 7, verse 5, 
that even his brothers did not believe. So we know that at least the boys didn't believe. Maybe some of the sisters did, but the boys didn't. And so we know that they're, they're, they did not grow up kind of following and worshiping their brother. They just viewed him as, you know, Jesus. I sleep on the top bunk, Jesus in the bottom bunk. We fight over the toys in the honeycomb box at breakfast. We had kind of this normal sibling relationship. Of course, Christ never sinned. And uh, they, but so that would be a pain because you couldn't blame him for anything, right? Because he just wasn't guilty. And they would have kind of seen him that way and it caused tension in the family. We talked a lot about that last weekend. When you think about Jude, though, Jude is unique in that he is the youngest brother, maybe the youngest sibling, and he would have had a very kind of interesting perspective on Jesus, right? So Joseph, Jude's father, Jesus's earthly father, uh, had died. The last time we see Joseph, Jesus is 12 years old. It's the last time he's in the biblical narrative. Uh, Somewhere between Jesus being 12 years old and Jesus being 30 years old, Joseph died. So there's this 18-year gap where the scripture's kind of silent about what happened in Jesus's life. And then when you start to see Jesus a lot is when he starts his ministry at age 30, and Joseph is never mentioned after that. So it's a very strong indicator that Joseph died in that time frame. Jude, being the youngest of the brothers, perhaps the youngest of the siblings then, would have been born, but probably have been a child when his dad died, okay? Child, maybe like a 12-year-old but probably young when his dad died. And in the ancient world, when a father died, the oldest son took over the family. So in our world, if dad dies, mom kind of takes over the family. We move from maybe a patriarchal family to a matriarchal family. The ancient world didn't work like that. You move from a, a patriarchal family, and then the son, the oldest son, just became the patriarch. So he would take over the family business. He would take over the family finances. He basically inherited everything. And he would take over leadership and care for his mother and the rest, of the, the rest of the family. So Jude was probably a child when Joseph died. Jesus would have then stepped up. He was the oldest of the children. He would have stepped up and would have provided for his mother and his family. And Jude would have watched that happen. So when Jude looked at Jesus, he would have seen a provider. He would have seen somebody he took some security in. He would have seen someone who watched over him. Jesus is sinless, right? So he would have been loving and caring for his brother Jude. And that would have been Jude's experience with Jesus. Uh, Jude would have idealized his, his older brother, right? I, w- I was thinking about this. I'm the, I'm the baby in my family. How many of you are the babies in your family? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. We're the fun ones. We were the ones clapping earlier. Everybody else isn't awake yet or thinking, I don't know. This is a very serious. It's church. Yeah. So I know how it works. Older siblings get ulcers and die young. So the rest of us, the babies, we all enjoy life. So I'm the baby of my family. My brother is 14 years older than I am. He's a lot older than me. In fact, we're looking for homes for him, if anybody knows of one. Um, Because I told him, I'll put him in a good home. I made that promise to him. So as I grew up, I, I idealized my older brother, right? And this would have been Jude. I, my, what, what I... What, my, what might have been my brother's opinions, I thought were just answers to things, right? So I, I went to the college my brother went to. 
Uh, my brother is a pastor. I wound up being a pastor. Like, he kind of blazed a trail for me, especially because my dad got sick. So my dad wasn't really there to do that for me. So my brother did it for me. And that would have been somewhat like Jude's experience with Jesus, uh, that Jesus just kind of led him. He watched him. He might have mimicked him, modeled him. And that's, that's very normal. Remember, Jude isn't divine, right? He's just a normal person growing up in kind of normal birth order stuff. And if you think about your family, that, that's kind of how that worked. Now, he also would have had mixed emotions with Jesus because while he probably idealized him a little bit, his older brothers thought Jesus was crazy. So Jude and the other boys, the Bible says they thought Jesus was out of his mind. They, they thought he was unstable, right? They didn't believe he was God. So Jude would have been looking at his relationship with Jesus, kind of interpreting it that one, one way, while hearing from his older siblings, yeah, man, Jesus, he just thinks he's God, you know? Mom worships the ground he walks on, you know? So all that tension would have played out there, and all of that would have been emotions and thoughts that Jude would have had to process when he was thinking about his brother and who he was and what he was like and how he was going to respond to him. The Bible doesn't give us a ton of that detail about Jude, but what it does give us is Jude's landing points. So how Jude viewed Jesus and his mixed emotions, we have to speculate, kind of plug in a little bit, but it is with great certainty that we can say that Jude landed at a place where he thought of his brother as God and worshiped him as Lord. In fact, let me show you. Open your Bibles up to the book of Jude. It's the book right before Revelation. It's the one that everybody skips on accident. So book of Jude is only one chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in your chairs. It's page 860 in those Bibles. And if you're electronic, we use the U the version app, Y-O-U version. You can open that up. Hit live. And our zip code is 44333. And Jude writes this one letter that we have in the Bible, and we can learn quite a bit about him from it. So how do we know that Jude landed on the idea or the fact that Jesus is indeed God? Well, he tells us, look at Jude verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother to James. That's the classic baby brother thing, right? Because uh, I grew up as a baby brother, and people would say, who are you? I'm like, My name's Jeff. Uh, I never met you before. I'm Dave Bogues' little brother. Oh, you're Dave Bogues. Yeah, we all hated that, right? That's why I'm going to warehouse the old man here in a little bit. I'm bitter about the whole thing. So that was Jude. He's like, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm James's brother. James, the head of the church in Jerusalem. James, the apostle. James, the just. James that you think of on the level of Paul and Peter, the early church thought of those as kind of three equals. I'm his brother. I'm Jude. I'm the baby, I'm the lesser known, okay? So he identifies himself that way. He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. So that's the first hint that we know that he landed, that his brother was God. And then he really nails it down in verse 24. He says this about his brother Jesus, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. 
Jude lands this question. There is no doubt in Jude's mind that his brother Jesus is God. Jude would have watched him or at at a minimum known the details of his execution, probably watched it. He would have dealt with all of the fallout in his family when his brother was executed. The turmoil that caused his family, his brother's family, the, the turmoil and the tragedy that caused to marry Jude's mother, right? He's in the middle of all that. He knows his brother has died, and he knows he has risen again from the dead. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that James was visited specifically by Jesus, and it would make all the sense in the world that Jude was as well. And he drew the conclusion, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Remember, that name is just his brother's name, right? I'm a servant of Dave Bogue. That's my brother's name. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I worship him. I love the way he ends his letter because these are words of worship. Look at him again. He's going to present us before his glorious presence. Glorious is a worship term with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. These are all terms of worship. And Jude, in kind of this very clear way, is saying, listen, I don't just view my brother as a righteous one. I don't view him as somebody who gives me positive input in my life. I worship my own brother. I bow on my knees and get on my face, and I know my brother is my Lord and Savior. His name's Jesus Christ, and all majesty, power, authority, and glory is due to him and through him and for him alone. So that was Jude's conclusion. Now, it's fascinating to see him land there and then to go back and look at the letter he wrote. Because what Jude does, and it's just some of the strongest stuff you'll ever find in the whole Bible. What Jude does in his letter is he's writing the early church. Remember, there is no Bible and there is no church history. There's no pastors. There's, there's nobody to lead like that yet. And so the apostles and the The disciples are leading the church yet, so they write letters to teach us how to do that. He writes the early church, and he says, listen, I want to define for you, these are my words, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to define for you the difference between a true follower of Jesus Christ and a counterfeit follower of Jesus Christ. There's true followers of Jesus Christ, and there's counterfeit followers of Jesus Christ. There are true worshipers that look at my brother and worship him with glory, majesty, power, authority. He is their Lord. He fall, they fall on their face before him. And then there are people who kind of, kind of orbit around my brother and use his name and his words and his teachings for a personal benefit. And Jude draws these two distinctions, and they're true for us even today. The Bible would teach very clearly that a true follower of Jesus Christ is not merely someone who just acknowledges Jesus as God or someone who just receives salvation. That's certainly, of course, an element, a critical element. But following Jesus doesn't stop there. A true follower of Jesus Christ is a worshiper of Jesus Christ. We look and we say, I believe in my heart that Jesus is God. He is Lord. And I am a worshiper who worships him in spirit and in truth. It's a, it's a different level, so to say, than I, I am a churchgoer, certainly. I am a 
Christian, I identify with one religion. I am a person who has good theology and sound doctrine. There's all of that plus when I look at Jesus Christ, I see the one true God and I worship him. A true follower of Jesus Christ is a worshiper. And what defines a worshiper is this. A worshiper is one who believes that I exist for God. I exist for God. So I worship you, God. So whatever brings you pleasure, whatever brings you fame, whatever fulfills your purpose, whatever you deem necessary and good as a use for my life, I willingly, fully, anxiously, eagerly give to you because I worship you. So you can do with me what you will, and I give all of myself as an act of worship to you. And that is the definition. It's what's indicative of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Well, there are also counterfeit followers of Jesus Christ, and this is what Jude drives at. There are people who claim to be worshipers of Jesus Christ, but what is different about them is this. A true worshiper would say, I exist for God, A counterfeit worshiper would say, a little bit of a tweak, they would say, God exists for me. So God's job is to make my life go the way that I want my life to go. God's job is to alleviate my problems. God's job is to give me my desires. God, I named it and I claimed it. You're supposed to deliver it to me, God. When a counterfeit follower of Jesus prays, they pray a, a, a Santa Claus ask list. God, I'd like a raise. I would like a sunny day. I would like a safe trip home. I would like blessed food. I would like a good night's sleep. See, I would like my house to sell quickly. I'm praying that prayer right now. Right? I, I would like all these kind of things for my life. Do this for me. And if you do this for me, in turn, then I will do this for you. I have a contractual agreement with God. I do for God, God does for me, because God exists for me, and I'm going to wrap that. I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to sing, I'm going to memorize my Bible, I'm going to put 20 bucks in the plate, I'm going to do all those kind of things, and that's going to cause God to function on my behalf. There are true worshipers of Christ who say, I exist for God, and there are counterfeit worshipers of God who say, God exists for me. Now, Jude lists these, and what he does in his letter is he goes through and he talks to this church. He says, guys, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just celebrate with you who Christ is and what he's done for us, but instead, I got to tell you about these counterfeit worshipers, and he describes them, and he does that so that we can make sure that we're not falling into those tendencies and also making sure that we're not following false Teachers. So look at Jude. Remember, there's only one chapter, verse 3. You see him set this up. Dear friends, although I am very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that's what I would love to just talk about, I feel compelled to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality 
and denied Jesus our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angel who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwellings, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and to perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Look at verse 12. These people that are going to go through this, these people are blemishes at your love feast, eating without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for the blackest, uh, blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Look at verse 16. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you in the last days, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Yikes. A Jew just does not hold back. And he says, listen, there are worshipers and there are counterfeit worshipers. And by the way, you're all going to wind up in church together. There are worshipers who look and say, my life is devoted to God. I exist for God. God, whatever circumstances come my way, whatever path you have for me, whatever your calling is on my life, whatever your desire is for me, I am eager to please you and give my life to you. It's what I want. Before, before I live for myself, I followed mere natural instinct. Whatever pleased me, made me happy, or caused me whatever desire I had, that's what I did. After I interacted with the resurrected Jesus Christ, well, I've been changed. I have a new mind. I have a new heart. I have a new instinct. I have a new hard drive. And that instinct, that passion is to give myself to you. Before I would look into the Bible and I would find self-help and good comfort and whatever quote would go on the back of a Thomas Kincaid coffee mug, that's how I live my life, see? And I would argue with God's word. This is the black and white, easy peasy, low-hanging fruit, and I won't even do that. I'm still Captain F-bomb. I'm still not going to give. I'm still not going to serve. I'm still not going to forgive. I'm not, I don't want to do those things. And that's the easy stuff to figure out in the Bible. Afterwards, I got purity, all that. Absolutely not an issue. That's the easy stuff. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to share in the sufferings of Jesus. I don't even know what all that means yet, but that's what I want because I worship you. You are the only God, and you alone are due majesty and glory and power and authority. It's through you, for you, by you, and returned to you. My heart longs for that. And Jude kind of jumps out at this a little bit. He says, listen. There are people who secretly slip in. Those are his words. And they're going to go to church. And they're going to claim the name of Jesus. And they're going to be cultural Christians. But when you look at their life, you're going to see 
There's a difference. People who participate and say and are active religiously as opposed to those who are fully devoted, eager, and fully surrendered to the call and the will and the desires of Christ. He says they're going to show up at communion. They're going to be in the, in the heartbeat of everything. In fact, they're going to be all, all around, but they're going to use the grace of God to justify their perversion, see? I know God doesn't want me sleeping with her, but he'll forgive me. He forgives everything. That's what's so great about Jesus. I know God doesn't want this. I know God doesn't want that. He says they're going to pervert God's grace. They're going to justify ungodliness. They're going to flatter to get their way. They're going to divide. They're going to find fault. They're not going to trust. They're not going to be big picture people. They're not going to be centered in on reaching the world for Jesus. They're going to be zeroed down on useless genealogies. Let's argue Bible trivia as an excuse to do nothing for God. And Jude says, that's not who my brother is. And that's certainly not why he died. And if you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus, who is a worshiper of my brother Jesus, I I don't even get how you stand in a constant argument with the Bible. It doesn't even make sense. Don't you want it? Why would you forever fight it? Now, it's so interesting where Jude kind of lands with all this. Because he doesn't say, all right, everybody, look at the person who you think is a false worshiper and point, right? He doesn't say, let's purify the church, right? Everybody we don't like, let's kick out. It's not his mindset at all. This is a caution. It's a warning. It's a caution that I look at for myself. See, I'm going to look at myself and say, am I like this? Is this my heart? And then it's a warning, it's a caution, so we can look at other people, ready, big term right here, are you, are you going to write this one down? Other people whom we love, and we want to talk to them about the, the true status, so to say, of their faith and their relationship with God. And so this is what Jude tells us to do in response to what he just laid out in verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring eternal life. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, remember, he's warning this early church. I wanted to just talk to you about how awesome God is, but instead I feel like I got to warn you about this stuff. What do we do now that we know? Jude says, okay, this is what you do. You start with yourself. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. The Apostle James says it this way. He would say, look in the mirror and believe what is shining back at you. Look at your own life and look into God's word. If God's word is saying to you, you know what? You don't even grab the low-hanging fruit. That's not even true of you. I mean, there's, there's like 20 things the Bible says to do that is easy peasy, easy to understand, and you won't even do that. So let's start there. And Jude says it this way. He says, listen, you grab hold of your most holy faith. 
You lock into who Christ is. You let yourself be molded. You change. You be transformed. You let the power of the resurrection pulse through your soul first. And when you do that, your life will align and more than, and more than your actions, your heart and your mind will align with the heart and the mind of God. Because when God looks at someone who is rebellious or God looks at someone who's confused, his first instinct isn't to nail them with a bolt of lightning because every one of us would be crispy by now if that was the case. His first instinct is mercy. And so Jude says, align yourself with God so that you have a merciful mind and a merciful heart. And when you're certain that you are a true worshiper and that you are pursuing the things of God, now in love, big term, in love, begin to look at the people around you. Look at verse 22. After you do that, then be merciful to those who doubt. See, some folks who are caught in this lifestyle or these actions that Jude lays out here are not straight up hard-hearted rebellious people. They are people who are not yet convinced that Jesus is the one true God. I bet you there's some of us like that right now, here, right? We're looking, we're investigating, we're thinking, we we haven't quite decided yet to place our faith in it. Doubt is not a sin, it's kind of a condition. And so Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. In other words, approach them with gentleness and respect and help them, Paul says, persuade them, walk them through the process of anchoring themselves to the the truth of who God is. You don't look at a person who doubts and kick them out of your life. You look at a person who doubts and you pull up a chair next to them and say, let's have this conversation, okay? Let's go through this. I am rooted, see? But we who are mature, we help those who who have doubts, who have questions, and we walk that through. So we're merciful to those who doubt. Then he goes on. There's another category. He says, verse 22, "Be, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. What does that mean? That means that hell is a real thing and a real place. And the reality of the human condition is this. If I have not yet accepted the salvation and the rescue of Jesus Christ, if I have not accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, it's not that I'm going to go to hell one day. It's that I'm going there now. Outside of Christ, it's not that I'm going to one day like, oh man, I went to hell. I'm on my way to hell now. That's why I need rescued from it. I'm on the wide path that leads to the destruction now. So Jude says, others, snatch them off that path. Snatch them from the fire. Pull them from the eternal punishment that they're going to face. Which, by the way, is what Christ does for every Christ follower. He rescues us. He pulls us from the fire, so to say. Because one of, the, one of the worst habits that the church has, in fact, it's sinful, is when we see someone rebel against God or deny God and they've been in our midst, and that's what Jude's talking about. We all, these people all go to church together. And they've been in, our, in the midst of a believer. And we see them fall off the way, so to say. Our instinct is to cut them off, shut them out, and talk about them, right? Do you know about, do you know about Susie? 
Oh, man, she's dating that guy. I think they're sleeping together. Let's pray. I'll put it on Facebook so we can all pray. Okay? And we will cut them off and kick them out and talk about them. And Jude says, what are you doing? Go after them. You who are mature, seek to restore. If you win a brother or sister over, great. If they ignore you and rebel against God, you can't stop that from happening. But believers, do not sit idly by while our friends and loved ones are falling away from God. So Jude says, if there's doubts, be merciful. Work that through with someone. Help them. If they've rebelled and they're falling away away from God, go after them. Snatch them from the fire. If they won't let you rescue them, then they won't let you rescue them. But but we we don't sit and wonder what happened to somebody. We love them and we chase them and we go because it's what God does for us. When the lost sheep separates from the flock, the shepherd doesn't ignore it and say, well, that's what that sheep's got coming to it. Right? He goes after that sheep to bring them back to where they could be. And then he says this, finally, he says, to others show mercy mixed with fear. Mercy mixed with fear, what does that mean? Mercy is the heart of God. It's care, it's concern, it's compassion, it's love, it's grace. Fear is the truth of who God is. I am to fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord means respect the Lord. It means reverence the Lord. It means worship the Lord. And at times, it means be afraid of God because there are consequences, right? So I fear the Lord. He says to others, others who have walked away from Christ will not worship him. They're counterfeit worshipers. They know it. They've been talked to about it. They've been loved. They've been helped. And they just refuse to follow God. You show mercy to them. I love you. I'm, I'm going to be with you. If you ever need something, let me know. I, I don't reject you. It, 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 if something tragic happens in your life, know that I am always here for you. Mercy mixed with fear. My friend, I love you, and you are wrong. You are in sin. Oh, I think that's very judgmental of you. I'm just calling it the way it is. Well, God would want me to be happy. That's true, but never at the expense of your holiness. God wouldn't want me to be alone. Yeah, he would. Well, God, God wouldn't want me to abstain from the rest of my life. Yeah, he would. Well, God, you have to understand, if two people love each other, then no. And I'm not going to pick at you, and I'm not going to blast you, and I'm not going to shout you down, and I'm not going to, I love you, but I fear God more than I fear you. I fear God more than I fear my family mad at me. I fear God more than I fear being out of step with culture. I fear God more than I fear what the government says is right or wrong. I fear God. Why? Because I am a worshiper. I don't worship you. I don't worship these relationships. I don't worship the country. I worship the one true God. He alone is worthy of majesty and glory and power and authority through Christ, for Christ, to Christ. 
And I love you. I'm not a jerk and don't want to be, but I will not move off of what the Bible says is true. I will not compromise this. I will not come up to speed with it. Because God has drawn a line and has set a standard, and that is what governs and defines my life. Before, I just wanted to make everybody happy and fit in and always make sure I got invited to the after prom party. But after, see this loving, merciful, righteous, holy, powerful God that I am going to look at in the eyes one day and give an account for my life, every human being is, that's who I worship and who I fear and who I strive to please. I love you and I fear God. That's kind of Jude's message, right? Kind of his message. Hey, I know my brother, and I, I watched him die, and I hung out with him after the resurrection. And let me tell you something when somebody raises themselves from the dead, you worship them. And when someone demonstrates the power to raise himself from the dead, hey, you kind of line up with them in life. And that's who. We are as followers of Jesus Christ. We're not people who take little pieces and parts of God to self-improve our lives and then cast off the parts that we don't like or understand. We're people who go all in. I exist for God. And to that end, his heart and his mind, his passion, his life, even his standards are what drive and define and direct me. Here's the resurrection math. We started doing this at Easter. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God. If he is God, his love is true. If his love is true, his teachings are right and good. And if his teachings are right and good, then he has defined for us not only the path to heaven, but to a way of life that pleases him and benefits us. I'm going to ask the band to come out. And as they uh, take us into a time of focus, I want you to kind of dwell on this question, okay? Is your relationship with God defined by mercy and fear? To receive the mercy of God, the grace of God, all the, the love that he lavishes upon us, all those are Bible terms, it's huge. I've accepted this part of God. I need it, I love it, I long for it, it fills my soul. And it's mixed with fear. I am worshiping none other than the one true God. Jesus is my savior and he is my Lord. And what I blow off or I casually interact with, this holy, righteous God, see, it means something to him to the point that he's called me, his follower, to align my life with it. Is your relationship with God mixed with mercy 
and fear. And where do those two things need to balance out or align your heart and your mind? Jude settled this question. I'm a worshiper of God. And I'm, I know he would say to us, we need to settle it as well. Think about it and pray about it. We sing together. I, I think I just really feel like I need to share this with you guys this weekend. A verse I didn't cover in Jude is verse 10. Jude says, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do will destroy them. Another part of the Bible says, there's a way that seems right unto a man. But in the end, it leads to death. Guys, this, this is a big deal. The sin in my life is a big deal. Apostle Paul says when, when we harbor sin, it's like, it's like we crucify Jesus all over again. We, we mock the cross. You, you died to free us from this. You died to forgive us. You died so that we could no longer be slaves to sin. And we say that, yes, we want that, and I worship you, and I follow you, and I want that. And then kind of on the side and on the sly over here, and it, it, it hurts the heart of God, and it offends the work of Jesus. It's a big deal. And the scripture says all over the place, it, it is going to destroy you. Another place in the Bible says, be, be sure your sins will find you out. It's going to catch up with you. And to say I'm a worshiper, as the Bible says, and I would invite you to confess your sin. To God. The Bible says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. The Bible says we're to repent. There's a before, there's an after. Repent just means I do a 180. I, I, I throw this out of my life and I go to the heart of God and I, I live there as God's holy people set apart. It's a big deal. And it's indicative of one who truly is a follower of Jesus. It's not that we quit sinning, it's, it's that we quit longing for it, lusting after it, looking for it, harboring it must cleanse our lives. If you want to change, if you want to be set free, if you want to break out of sin, the power of the resurrection is the only thing that will do that. And embracing it and accepting it, and interacting with Christ, he leads us, he sets us free.
you've never repented of your sin and asked Christ for salvation, I encourage you to do that now. Your words, your heart to God's heart, he knows what you mean, tell him. If you're harboring sin and holding on to it, I encourage you to repent of that now. Surrender it, cleanse it, give it over to God, ask forgiveness. Confess it to him. Later on, confess it to a friend, right? Get people around you. But this marked difference is to be a part of what defines us and what drives us as the people of God. Would you pray about that now? Just bow your heads and pray about that now. As God tugs on your heart and leads you, you respond to him. Worship your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.